Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 193. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to discuss Tron on its 40th anniversary. And here I thought we were going to be doing Tron to talk about it for the opening of the attraction at the Magic Kingdom as a celebration. (laughs) Boy, was I wrong. Well, we can't be alone in thinking that they were going to have this ride open for the 40th. If it wasn't open for Disney 50... Surely it would have come the following summer. Surely. When Guardians was cranked out in less time than a coaster that you have built already. I st- I will never understand this. Nobody will. There is such an interesting story around this film, though, because it was a box office bomb. It is a cult classic. And I did not know, really until prop culture that the film was a box office bomb because it was so revered that I just assumed it was this major blockbuster success for Disney. It grieves me to say it, but that is not surprising. Um, Even for me, I, you know, I think I fell victim to the same thing. I had known the title, but I didn't actually sit down to watch it until you showed it to me. And I think that was only, you know, you were surprised that I hadn't seen it yet, but the only reason we really sat down to watch was because Legacy had come out and I had to see the predecessor. Um, but I think a lot of that comes from this film is so ahead of its time in many ways. But I don't just mean the production. I think the genre was also ahead of its time because you didn't have films like war games yet or like a Jumanji where this idea of like jumping into a game. Right was so prevalent and then you know once the 90s happened they were cranking that style of movie out you know your your christmas movie release your big summer blockbuster like it was what you were taking your kids to see at that time yeah the subject matter the production all of it was ahead of its time the question is does the film still hold up are we still excited to sit and watch Tron. That is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy to stay up to date on all the new releases. At Flynn's Arcade, we see inside the video game Light Cycle, a cyber world where avatars play against each other, ranging from accountants to military personnel. We learn that the the avatars are actual computer programs hijacked by the master control program. Meanwhile, in the real world, former NCON employee Kevin Flynn, the arcade's owner, attempts to hack into the NCON servers until master control captures his program, who reports Flynn's actions to Ed Dillinger, senior executive vice president, who cuts... Uh, off all access to Tron in an attempt to keep Flynn from finding a file that they have hidden. When programmer Alan Bradley, who helped develop Tron as a security program that can be a watchdog for the MCP, finds out about this, he tells his girlfriend Laura Baines, who suggests that they go to Flynn for help. At the arcade, they tell Flynn that Group 7 access was suspended and that Dillinger is on to Flynn's actions. Flynn tells them that three years prior, he developed a slew of video games that Dillinger stole and presented to NCOM as his own, and he wants to prove that he is, in fact, the creator of the games, so Alan tells him that his Tron program uh, program can help. They break into NCOM so that Flynn can hack into the program. Meanwhile, the MCP tells Dillinger that it wants to hack into the Pentagon and threatens to expose Flynn as the true genius to keep him from stopping the hack. As Flynn begins to hack into the system, the MCP activates a digitizing laser that Laura has developed and blasts Flynn into the game grid to force him to play his own games as an avatar. The MCP tells his second-in-command, 
Sark that he wants Flynn trained so that he can play in the games and die so that the MCP can continue his mission. At training, Sark tells the trainees that everything they learn will be stored on an identity disc and that they can be erased if they do not comply. Flynn also meets Ram and Tron. They duel and compete to help take down Sark and the MCP, eventually joining forces to do so. After being attacked by a pursuit force, Tron becomes separated from Ram and Flynn, who are mistakenly assumed to be dead. While recovering, Flynn finds that he can hack and manipulate the programs from the inside, and Ram realizes that Flynn is a user, not a program, before de-resing. He goes into a de-resolution. Tron finds Yori, Laura's avatar, and recruits her to help them. Tron gets to Dumond, another avatar, to help communicate with Alan and does so using his identity disc. Alan directs them to get to the MCP's core to destroy it, so Tron and Yori steal a solar sailor to get there, and Flynn joins them, telling him that he is a user rather than a program. Sark tracks them down and destroys the sailor, leading Flynn and Yori to believe that Tron is dead, while they are captured by Sark, who leaves them on his ship to be de while he escapes. He also... Uh, we also see that Tron has survived, and he battles Sark. Flynn, meanwhile, manipulates the program to save the ship from de-resolution. When Sark is defeated, the MCP gives him all of his functions to stop Tron. While pulling energy from other programs, Flynn jumps into the MCP's beam to distract him, while Tron destroys him at his core using his identity disc. Flynn is then digitized back into the real world and prints his proof that Dillinger stole his games and he takes control of NCOM. It's interesting because this sounds like such a convoluted plot. Yes. But I think that that's due to the technical jargon because when you strip all of that away, the story's pretty thin. And I don't mean that as a knock against the film, but it is very simple. It's just elevated because of all of the of the set, really, and because they are using such technical terms to tell the story. That's the thing. I expected when we sat down, like, that I would have, like, at least a full page, if not two pages of notes in regards to the film, the plot, and all that. I literally have a half a page. Because to your point, it's a pretty straightforward plot. But this is kind of the point, right? And I, I feel like more than the plot itself, this is probably the biggest part of the conversation that we're going to have today. 40 years later, this plot's very simple. Right. I think that's the thing. Like, 40 years ago, this this film and Steven Lisberger was so ahead of their time that you can sit here now and you could say, it's a really straightforward plot. But back in 1982, this must have been so confusing to understand. What's amazing, too, is that they were able to convey this plot and, you know, attract big talent to a film like this. I think part of that was because of the Disney name. Uh, and this was in the era where they were really trying to pump money in into the celebrities right. so that they could get the box office return. And instead, they got a box office bust, as we said before. But having watched Prop Culture, it's amazing to see this cast and crew reunite and have such fond memories of this film. Uh, and the way that they talk about it, you can tell that it was such a collaborative effort. And I just appreciate that so much that everyone was able to understand the assignment. And I can't imagine that at the time when CGI wasn't so prominent that everyone was able to to see through on this vision when, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe because we're so used to it now. Yeah. But in a time when they weren't, everyone was able to commit to it because they were able to convey this story and this this vision for what they wanted to do. Right, because if you break it down to its bare-bone elements, the story's been told a thousand times. Corporate greed. Somebody steals somebody's idea and gets rich off of it, 
and the original creator has to do everything in their power to get their credit and get their fame and get their wealth. Right? That, right. that is literally what this film is. Right. What makes it convoluted is the idea that they get sucked into the game grid. And the fact that, to your point, that they could all look at this 40 years ago, see the bigger picture and believe in it, it not just speaks to the intelligence of the director and the screenwriting, but also of the cast that they were not intimidated to take this thing on. Exactly. All right. So let's let's just talk about the film that we do have here. Like I said, it's a super, super basic plot. But what I love about it is the setting. I love because what the thing is now, it it's they they've done it with Wreck It Ralph, and it wasn't until I sat this week and I went, God, Wreck It Ralph kind of stole a lot of ideas from Tron, didn't it? A little bit. That you take the idea of having games and having computer programs, and rather than rather than them just being this arbitrary thing that's on a screen that comes out of a out of a machine, you build this world around it. I love the fact that we get to live inside these computer programs. Agreed. And the other thing that I thought was interesting, super interesting, that was incredibly ahead of its time, like in Wreck-It Ralph, you're playing as Ralph. You don't play as Sean, you don't play as Jackie, you play as Ralph. Right. The whole idea that the user on the outside has control of the program but in order to control the program, you need the man on the inside and it's just your avatar. That's incredible to me. I think that is where this film can get a little bit confusing, but that's more once we get to Encon. Right now, it's just the opening scene. They're playing Light Cycle. Yeah. And that's what I want to talk about right now is how awesome this game is and how incredible Flynn's Arcade is. It's a great set. The it entire really set build is awesome. I wish we had gotten to spend more time in this arcade. I think, too, they sort of missed capturing the era a little bit because you see some adults as they're weaving in and out of the games, but I feel like that's most of the people that work there. And it seems like it's all younger kids. And I feel like they should have... Uh, shown a broader spectrum of an age range of people who went to the arcade because it was such the thing to do. It was, but I don't, I don't think that's really what their focus was. They were focused on putting us into this digital world. Their focus was not, look at these people playing video games. You're right, but like I said, I just wish we had been able to spend a little bit more time on Flynn's set because other than this opening sequence where we're introduced to the light cycle game, we only go back when Alan and Lori go to get Flynn. Yeah. And then we don't get any other time there. Uh, yeah, and then that's the end of it. Yeah, so just a little bit more time to live in that world. Let's talk about when we do go to NCOM. Um Let's talk about the quote-unquote set that is NCOM. I love all of this grid imagery. Even from the helicopter flying over the city, it's all a grid pattern. Um, so I love that it immediately starts directing your attention to mirror the light cycle game that you've just seen and set up the idea that something is happening. It, it's definitely calling to the audience. Yeah, and the whole cubicle set with the matte painting. So, so brilliant. It's so It looks so good. If not for prop culture, I don't think I would have ever known that that wasn't an entire office that they were shooting in. No, it's completely seamless. It, it's incredible. And they gave, I didn't realize, they gave um, Harrison Ellenshaw AP credit on this film. He's an associate producer, not just uh, credit in the art department. I'm sure part of that is nepotism because he is the son of Disney legend Peter Ellenshaw, who did the background paintings for Mary Poppins and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, you know, and his artwork is amazing in his own right, but I, I really think that extra credit came from what he had to do technologically to match his painting with this set. You know, it sort of goes above and beyond just painting a, a backdrop. Right. Um, let's stay in this set for 
a little while here too. Um, because I love when we get into Dillinger's office that you have touch screens, that you have digital consoles. Like again, this movie being completely ahead of its time, but also painting Dillinger in a light where he's almost like Darth Vader, where he's in this super stylized technical office and you know that he's the man, obviously. So immediately you do not trust him. Interesting you say Darth Vader because I was very much reminded of Tony and Jarvis. Now. Now, yes. Uh, Obviously, well, that's what we're talking about, right? Is how ahead of this time it was. But the way that he is interacting with a flat touchscreen that is built into a surface. I mean, yes, that is very much Star Wars. Probably piggybacking off of Star Wars because that did come first. But the fact that he's able to talk to this computer it has the voice recognition and he interacts with it is more what what read Jarvis to me and it's so interesting to see him interact with that because you really don't know the first time you see the film you really don't know what's going on or what to expect and it becomes a big shock and they don't waste any time really and I, I appreciate that they don't waste time getting to the point that The MCP has figured it out on its own. It's gotten smart on its own. It's doing it all. I mean, I hate to use the term organically because it is a computer program, but it's happening. And again, naturally, it's a computer program. There's nothing natural about it, but it is happening organically. There's no better way to put it, really. Ultron. Exactly. Exactly. This is where it did get a little bit confusing for me, like I was talking about earlier with the avatars, because we are... You know, they do flash to an in-game sequence. And what really threw me is that the Avatar is talking about being an accountant. Yeah. And that made it sound like people were being trapped in the game from the real world, which is eventually what happens with Flynn. But it sort of set up the idea that this computer program was taking people at its own will and that's not that is not what is happening. No, it's taking other computer programs because it's just absorbing information from everything that it can so that it can grow and get smarter. Right, but the way it read to me the first time before, you know, I got a couple of viewings under my belt was that people were just being sucked through their video screens into the game, which I think is a great metaphor. Um, but I like that when that eventually does happen, it's very much sci-fi instead of just, you know, a blip and and this person is gone from an arcade setting. Yeah, and they do a good job in foreshadowing that when Alan, after he speaks to Dillinger, he's frustrated and he goes to talk to Laura and they have set up this digitizing laser. Um, the shrink machine? It looks like the shrink machine. And again... We're going to say this at nauseum, so if you get sick and tired of it, that's a shame. This movie is ahead of its time. Now, look, we don't have digitizing lasers now in regards to making something disappear and reappear, but they do laser imaging to reconstruct, you know, whether it be buildings or people. Um, It's not uncommon that this is, you know being practiced on the daily now so the whole notion that it's i mean i'm sure it was in development anyway but it's it starts here and to see where they thought it would go to where it actually is 40 years later is incredible it is the whole set is incredible really i love this you know laser bay subfloor because you think it's just an office building with a creepy guy at the top yeah but there's a whole other operation going on to your point completely ahead of its time um and and it's just so funny it's ahead of its time in the real world but even just this design of the machine like we said, it, it totally reads The Shrink Machine and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but this was seven years before Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out. Right. Right. Um, let me just point out now, one thing that I've never jived with in regards to this film is Laura with anybody. 
Yeah. So we get introduced to Laura when Alan goes down out of frustration and we see the digitizing laser for the first time. And then immediately from there, they go to Flynn's arcade where Flynn is playing video games and he's breaking records on the machine because Laura suggests they go to Flynn because she knows that Flynn has been trying to hack into the system. When the three of them are together in Flynn's little apartment above the arcade. Another set that I love. It is a cool set. And it's so fitting of the character that he would just have like this crash pad above his business. Yeah. I don't buy her with Alan and I certainly don't buy her with Flynn. I don't think that we're supposed to buy her with Alan. Um, You know, when he first goes down to the laser bay, he gives her this quick unromantic peck and I I get it because there are still people that are working. So, you know, at, at the time, especially, you weren't going to do like this huge PDA in front of all of her coworkers. So right. I can buy that they're downplaying the chemistry. Um, but they don't really give us enough history on her and Flynn's relationship to make that believable. Like, how long were they together? Uh, how serious it was and it completely throws off Alan's relationship with Flynn because he's got such an animosity towards him just simply because he's her ex. Yeah. Uh, You know, if there was a little bit more context, I would buy, you know, well, I, I don't buy it because they don't give us enough to go on if Alan is jealous of him or if he's worried and he should be because later Lori kisses him or... Well, we'll get into that with with the avatars, but um, you just needed to give us a little bit more to go on, not for the story, but for the character relationships. Yeah, but with that being said, I do like their motivation. I like that Flynn is trying to prove that he developed these games so that he gets his, you know, his fame and fortune. I like for Alan, the enemy of the enemy is my friend. Um and it adds that layer of drama because neither one of them truly want anything to do with each other, but they both know that they need each other at the same time. So it does create for an interesting subplot and some interesting drama. So like where they don't flesh out how long Flynn and Laura were together and they don't really deep dive into that, they unpack a lot just by virtue of having them work together. What they did do well is that Alan, regardless of the relationship that Flynn and Laura had, is treating Flynn like a has-been. And, you know, they get into, I don't understand why you were at the top. You were this great programmer. You should be running this company. And here you are with this little arcade. And it, it he kind of, Alan kind of means it as a put-down. Yeah. And it shouldn't be. And then you do sort of get the stakes raised from Flynn because he's like, well, you know, it's packed in here. I'm making money, but then I have to pay out all of these games that I'm renting in the arcade. Um, And normally that much exposition would get a little stale, but I think they do a good job of getting in and getting out of it quick and giving us just enough to go on as to why Flynn would not only want his name and his reputation back, but it also allows him to sort of fire back at Alan without having to make a huge issue of it. Yeah. Um, The tension is palpable, right? Like, you can feel it from the start. Um, And, I mean, at the root of it, you could sit there and kind of wonder, all of this over Laura... And and maybe to the point you made earlier, this is where we need to know like how long each of them were with her, has been with her, what the extent of the relationship is. Does Flynn want her back? Yeah, because you just get the feeling that Flynn's just happy living in his arcade until such time that he can prove that he developed these games. Right. Um, so we get to NCOM. We go back to NCOM. Um, they break in through a very, very thick security door. Um maybe too thick, but they break in. Um, And as soon as Flynn sits down, I love the entire setup of this. The fact that they go to Laura's lab because it is in that 
you know, sub laboratory. There's no cameras. Nobody can see them. The security guard completely buys that they're working late. Everything about it is such a great setup. And the fact that the MCP, now that the MCP has taken the program to activate the laser, and he sits there and says, I'm going to blast him. I've already got him in my range. I'm going to bring him into this world. I'll make him disappear. So not only does it stop him, but he's also going to die in his own world. This entire thing is brilliantly set up. It really is. And they did it with... A, a piece of dialogue earlier on too um when laura is talking to her uh i kind of get the impression that he's he's a mentor walter yes i would love to believe that that's a tribute it's gotta be right i'm, I'm just gonna convince myself that anytime we hear the name walter walter in a disney movie that it's a tribute and i'm just gonna live in that world for sure uh but walter's line is computers will start thinking for themselves and people will stop whoa hit home much yeah, um, really. again this is this is i think the most classic example of this film being ahead of its time but it also does clue us into what is about to happen to flynn right so flynn gets digitized into this 8-bit and yet at the same time 3d world that reminds me of all of the video games that i used to play in the arcade as a kid and i absolutely love being back here this is where I feel like our generation is going to appreciate this film more so than younger kids now. I mean, I certainly think that this is a great family film and you can watch it as a family, but we are of that last generation where you had the simple 8-bit games. I mean, we were really the first generation that that had them with Super Nintendo and all that, uh, at least having them a console in your home, right. I should say. Um but where Wreck-It Ralph totally tugs on your heartstrings for all the 90s nostalgia games, this taps in in the same way, almost. Yes, but in, in the more primitive form. Yes. You know, those who remember, those who owned an Atari 2100, those who had the original Nintendo Entertainment System, right? Right. This is the world that we all know. But a kid who was born in the 90s, like, yes, they'll get it in Wreck-It Ralph. I don't think they're going to relate to it as much here. No. Um, But we're in this world, and Flynn is immediately put through some brutal treatment um, by Sark that is going to put him through the training to get him on the game grid and... They are treating him like a prisoner at this point. For sure. I mean, really, all of them, even when he meets Ram, they're all locked in cells. Yeah. And before I said that the film on its, on its, you know, on its very primitive form is company steals idea. I need to get my idea back. What's woven in as soon as we get into this digital world is now this becomes a war and survival movie. Yes. Right. Where there's always that war movie where, you know, it's saving private Ryan, right. Or it's black Hawk down. Somebody gets separated from the pack and they need to fight and have the will to survive. So now you've got this corporate greed movie interwoven with a war film trying to be star Wars. And I don't say that as a negative. Yeah, under the direction of anyone else or or with different talent. And, you know, what we were talking about before with everyone having that unified vision of what needed to be done. This film could have fallen apart just for exactly the reasons that you said is it's an amalgamation of so many things. And really, a film should crack with that much going on and it doesn't. Um, And even, you know, all of that is really channeled in that first game, which is so cool. Yes. Where they're using the, um, well, if you've watched prop culture, it is, it's a basket. It's like a scoop basket that they painted white and they put tape on. uh, And yet it looks like some modified lacrosse stick. Uh, I, I love this game. I think it looks so cool. My only, really my only knock in this film, other than the relationship with Laura, um, 
I just wish that they had had different colors on the uh, bullseye as they're getting knocked out because sometimes you can't tell. Like the first time I saw this, I didn't even realize that the point of the game was to knock out your opponents, literally knock out the floor underneath them. Right. So I think a little bit of differentiation with the color would have helped a little bit here. It's still so cool though. And then you really get the idea um, that, I mean, you know that Sark is not a good guy, uh, but the way that he's calling the shots and, and dictating who is going to win this game and the opponent is going to be killed. Well, they're, they're going to be derezzed. Right. Which is killed basically. It is in the sense of the avatar, but it's not as high stakes as Flynn has for winning these games and surviving, obviously. Right. Um, so he quickly meets Tron and Ram. I have no problem with that. I have no problem just meeting them as prisoners, or Tron's really a rebel at that point. Ram is more a prisoner. I don't mind that we just meet them quickly and just get on with it. Right, but because this is supposed to mirror the real world, this is where the relationship with Laura does come back into play because that tension that we saw earlier on should have carried through. I get that Flynn relates to Tron in the sense that he is a rebel, and I think that's why he gravitates toward him, but if this is supposed to be the Avatar, and he's sort of, there's definitely a sense of familiarity there, I feel like carrying the tension over would have been more effective and, you, you know, just give Tron a reason to have to rally the troops a little bit instead of them just being like, okay, we're going with you. Yeah, they are, they are kind of quick to follow him. Um, I don't mind because I think it keeps the pacing of the film going. But remember something, these are avatars in the sense of they're mirroring the people that developed the program, but they're really computer programs. I think that's where the film, if there's any confusion with the film now, that's where it still lies because they're avatars of the users, but they're not avatars of the users. They're programs. Right. And I guess once you do take Laura out of the equation, there is sort of a mutual respect between Alan and Flynn because they understand each other's work. And they're trying to just destroy the MCP. Right. But as far as the game goes, when they actually decide to go rogue, uh, it's just incredible. I like, even though it's a retread of Light Cycle, which we've seen before, now we as the audience understand how that game works and what they're doing to break out of it. And it's just so cool how they go about it. I love it. It is. And they get pursued and they get separated um, what I don't understand here is why it took so long for Ram to die. Um, it seems like, or D-Rez, whatever it is, however you want to categorize the death of these programs, um, it seems like it took forever for no apparent reason. You just hit it right on the head. That's exactly what I have is, did we really need to lose him? Especially because, you know, they're working together. You sort of get like that buddy comedy going between the three of them. Uh, in the scene preceding his death, or Devrez, whatever you want to say, uh, when they're drinking the water. So yeah. cool, by the way. It looks great. It It is absolutely phenomenal. You would think, though, that because he's recharged, he can't be taken out that easily. He just recharged. So why is it that he took the hit and he can't make it out when Flynn sort of sustained the exact same injury? I mean, maybe he didn't get have as much like thrown on top of him. Well, but no, Flynn's also real. So he's that's also real. That's why he's not going to be as injured. But it just doesn't make sense because Ram is resting. And you think that he's just recharging and he's going to get back up and then he's gone. The, the, they pull the plug. It, it doesn't gone. make sense. Meanwhile, Tron has survived and he's trying to find more help. And he finds Yuri who is the Laura avatar. Which is why I keep calling her Lori. Um, well, that's the thing, right? Like, you'd think if it was, like, Lori Yuri. Laura Yura. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know why they would make it so close and yet so far. Or, like, obviously Flynn is the same, but, like, Alan and Tron. You can't really 
interchange those. That's not confusing. Or or with Ram, like give her another. I, I assume that they named Ram for the computer term, right? For access memory, but like why that then give her something? Yeah, I don't even know why. I don't know how Yuri even connects to this laser that she has developed. Right. Yeah, it's they don't explain it. I don't really care, but those are the little things where in retrospect, you kind of look back on them and go, you could have cleaned up a little bit of the confusion, just giving it a little bit more separation within the name. Right. But we go and find her, um, and she wants to help destroy the MCP as well. And almost immediately, um, we have... Yuri and Tron and Flynn all together. And I'm not going to say that the drama is the same because Yuri and Tron are very much more of an established thing in this digital world. I think even more so than Laura and Alan are in the real world. But there is a kind of a bit of intrigue here as soon as... Uh, Flynn comes along just in terms of Yuri. You can see where there's a bit of confusion on her end. Right. Um, and this is where, again, it's like, did you need to take Ram out? Because he does fill Alan. Uh, Alan, here we go. And <laughs> <laughs> Just when I said it wasn't confusing. Uh, he does fill Tron in that Ram didn't make it. But I guess because they they weren't together for that long you don't get the emotional impact of it and it would have served the film better if they were trying to avenge Ram. Right. And instead it just falls flat because it's like Ram didn't make it. And, and there's no, I I mean, I would have even bought into a cheesy, like, well, we got to do this for Ram. You know, it's the eighties. I would give it a pass, you know, being that we as the audience are parting with a character the rest of the characters in the film should be more invested in him. Yeah, I guess in retrospect, you can kind of like pawn it off as well. They're programs they don't really feel. But then you have a romantic relationship with Tron and Yuri. So clearly they're feeling something emotionally. Right. Um, all right. So then from there, they're on the run. They get separated again. After their solar sailor gets destroyed. This film has a runtime of under an hour. Well, it's under two hours. It's just over an hour and a half. I think it's runtime is 96 minutes. Um, To me, the scene on the solar sailor is the only part of the film where it feels like it's dragging on forever. I certainly agree with that, and I do have a solution for it. Um, where it really drags is that they leave Flynn hanging. You see that he's, you know, one of uh, Sark's guys. Soldiers, whatever. Yeah, whatever whatever you want to call them. Security, whatever. Uh, they've turned him red. Yes. So, obviously... Uh, Yuri and Tron don't realize that it's him and they think he's an enemy. They knock him off the solar sailor. Um, and we see that he doesn't go down. We we know that he's hanging on, but because they cut away for so long, I'm, I'm like, wait, did he actually make it? Like, why is he not back up there yet? I think this is where, and maybe it's just self-serving because like I said, I love the set. I wish we had gotten to spend more time at Flynn's. I feel like, it would have been a lot more effective to cut back to Laura and Alan and what's going on at Encom, or even if they had gone back to the arcade. Because think about it now, Flynn Flynn has disappeared. Yeah, in the real world. So wouldn't they be wondering what happened to him? It would have been so much more effective. It would have paced it out so much better if they had given us the stakes of what is going on with the rest of the characters. Well, this is the funny thing. It never, it is never defined as to how long Flynn is in that You're computer You're right. Mode. 
it, it could have it been could an be instant. a minute. Yeah, yeah. They never define how long he's been on the game grid. Well, maybe we are supposed to deduce that. I'm only realizing that now because they do it with the orange. And, and they bring it back immediately. So I'm wondering if it is a case of they are messing with time as well. And you could spend days in the game, but you'll be a blip in the real world. Right. Um, but still, it just would have been nice to have that check-in with, you know, maybe Dillinger is, is, well, he is figuring out what's going on. He knows Flynn is trying to hack. Like, it just would have been nice to see what's going on with the rest of the characters that we're supposed to care about rather than channel everything through the avatars. Because what that does is it makes everything that happens in the beginning of the film in the real world feel like it was only supposed to be set up. You know, they are still characters in their own right. We are supposed to care about them it shouldn't just be, well, we're introduced to them to figure out what they mean in computer world. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with you there. Um, all right, so let's get to the end of the film here. Um, back down, well, not back down on the game grid because we've never really left. Um, the three of them are reunited when they realize that Tron was not killed after the Solar Sailor was destroyed. Um, and they communicate with Alan and they get the idea that as long as they distract the MCP, it can be destroyed from its core. So Flynn jumps into the beam that keeps the, 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 the MCP is kind of like Zordon. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's just like a floating head. Um, and so cool though. It is the way that they, they made it spin and you can clearly read the face as fast as it's going. Yeah. Um, he jumps into the beam to distract it and using the identity disc, Tron destroys it. If it seems like I'm getting to the end quick, it's because they get to the end quick. Right after drag, 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 then in an instant it, it's done. Which to me I'm fine with. I don't need to watch them struggle with destroying the MCP, but this goes back to my point before. If you could have if you would have shaved literally four minutes off of that solar sailor scene, mm -hmm. this would not have felt rushed. Right. That's the problem. This scene comes right after the scene with the solar sailor that just drags on and on and on and on. That the solar sailor is a bit of a pace killer here, and I think that it does a disservice to the end of the film because it does make it feel like they rush to get to the point. And this is where, especially being that they communicate with Alan, we should see Alan. Right. But instead what we get is uh, Flynn digitized back into the real world, and that's where, like... No one really seems to be, like, relieved that he is back. So that's why I'm thinking, like, he must have only, like, in the real world, he must have only been gone instantaneously. Right. And down goes Dillinger, like we all knew he would. Which is what you want. We did skip over, though, <laughs> because we've been talking about it so much. Um, and And these unnecessarily convoluted relationships or maybe they seem convoluted because they haven't been fully developed. Yuri thinking that Tron is dead kisses Flynn and then they realize that Tron is not dead. She kisses Tron. Superfluous. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it, it is a weak point of the character. It, it's, it's weak. Uh, let's talk about the characters, though. Well, I, I guess that's it, because if it's her avatar, it is showing us that she does feel conflicted with who she's going to choose, but she doesn't go back to Flynn. So what was the point? I think she'd rather be with Flynn, and that's like her true love, but she stays with Alan. So what was the point of kissing Flynn in the game? Yeah, I don't know. Because it didn't do anything for Flynn's character either. No. All right, let's talk about the characters here. Let's. Starting with Flynn, played by Jeff Bridges. 
he's the only person, he's the only character in this film that has the same name in the real world and on the game grid. I just want to point that out right now. Right. Um, but he's great. I love him in the game. I love him in the real world. And I just love Jeff Bridges. I, I think this is perfect casting, especially I think for me, it's that apartment scene because I totally believe he's got that laid back lifestyle and yet he balanced it perfectly with being a hyper motivated character. It's not like he was just the sidekick that would prefer to hang out and play video games all day. No, not the case at all here. He's a, he's a very strong lead. Bruce Boxleitner plays Alan and Tron. Um, what I love about this character is he's almost insufferable as Alan, but you love him as Tron yes. and they couldn't be more polar opposite. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's one of those things. If you've not watched the prop culture episode yet, do it just for seeing him reunited with his costume. The the nostalgia that immediately washes over him and the fondness that he remembers this experience with, it it totally makes that whole episode. David Warner plays Ed Dillinger, the senior executive vice president of ENCOM. He also plays Sark. I didn't realize that Sark was the same guy. Yeah. I think that Sark as a mouthpiece for the MCP inside the game grid is brilliant. And I think that his costume is outstanding because the headpiece that they put on him completely hides the fact that it's Dillinger. And then when they break it, when they finally take him out, that is so cool looking. That's one of those things where I wonder, and they didn't say as much in prop culture, uh, where they're using the same actor for budgetary reasons, but it's so... It, Regardless of the reason, it so works for story here. It does. Cindy Morgan plays Laura and Yori. She has joked herself that she will only do cult classics because you know her from this and you know her from Caddyshack. Um, I, I mean, I like her in the film. You know what it is? I think I like her in the film because I liked her in Caddyshack and I thought she was funny in Caddyshack. I hate to say it. It's nothing against her, but it's... It's a very vanilla character here, both on the game grid and in the real world. I don't dislike her, but this is a classic example of, you know, women being in films for the love interest and that's their sole purpose. Uh, and especially because the love interest really doesn't get fully developed. It's almost like she doesn't serve a purpose here. So this is where, especially in her job, she's a scientist or, or she's a, an engineer. Yeah. Uh, which at the time, you know, lean into that. That wasn't a very prominent thing. Um, so I think that uh, with some better writing, they could have fleshed her out a little bit more. She could have had a bigger role. Um, and it's unfortunate that she was just a plot point. Yeah. Dan Shore plays Roy. He also plays Ram. I'm pretty sure that Roy, his only line at MCOM is, hey, Alan, can I have some of your popcorn? And then he gets fleshed out more as the character Ram. I liked him as Ram. How much can you like somebody that says, can I borrow, can I have some of your popcorn? Like He doesn't do much more than that. But as Ram, he was a really good character. And I don't mind that they killed him off but I wish that we would have seen a little bit more of him. I feel like he maybe even could have helped Flynn a little bit more understand that he's on this game grid, what they have to do to survive. I know that Flynn developed these programs, but developing a program and understanding how to live through it are two completely different things, and I would have liked to see Ram dragged out a little bit more. Completely agree. I love Ram. He might even be my favorite character, which is why it's so unfortunate we had to lose him for seemingly no reason, um, especially because you didn't set him up in the real world and make us invest in him there. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering if the reason they took him out is to just demonstrate sort of what can happen in the game, because the only other people we've seen taken out are the quote unquote bad guys. So... I guess you sort of needed to balance that because if everyone just survived and it was one big happy ending, I mean, it takes away from the reality of what happens technically with these programs. Sure. 
Um, f- let's talk about the production. Um, how ahead of its time it was. It's amazing that it is as ahead of its as it is as ahead of its time as it was, considering these are basically like leotards with masking tape, electrical tape, hockey helmets, and frisbees. That's basically what all of this is. I feel like that's the perfect juxtaposition, though, because you have these amazing digital sets that they've created. Um, but to see how simple these were, uh, and I mean, those are the coolest kind of props, too, where you really are making something from a recognizable ob- object like a hockey helmet, and all you're doing is putting tape on it, and it becomes this entirely other thing. I, I think that is so brilliant. Um and again, watch prop culture. My favorite story from that is that these leotards, to your point, they were so thin, uh, the cast was asked to to wear robes and not just walk around in them. When they went to the commissary. Yes. Um, but the fact that they were able to use these computers in such a unique way to build this world, to do this with the special effects, like, like is some of the neon janky? Yeah, a little bit. Like when the characters turn, you lose some of the perspective, but you shouldn't lose perspective on how big of a deal it was that they were able to pull this off 40 years ago and how doing this 40 years ago has played such a role in getting us to where we are now. Right, especially because of the way that they had to layer everything. I mean, there were certain shots where they had to isolate the actor's face then put the costume on so that another camera layer, I mean, uh, with the costume so that they could make it glow with the neon. It's it's just such an achievement. It is. And I'll be honest with you. I would rather see more of that than CGI costumes in films now. Something that's completely CGI, not something that's just rendered over. Um, I'd rather see more of that. Now, of course, that's never going to happen. But frankly, there are parts as janky as it was. There are parts of that that look better than some of the things that are coming out of the MCU right now. Agreed. And to me, the thing that was also flawless across the board is the soundscape. It's very lightly scored. uh, And most of it is, you know, the video game noises that that you here in the game and they're they're unique to Tron but they're also so familiar to what we know playing video games I love that final thoughts on Tron uh it was ahead of its time do we say it was ahead of its time because it's ahead of its time once or twice uh no it it definitely holds up um it laid the groundwork for so many other films uh like you said, it as much as we love Wreck-It Ralph, I never thought it was ripping off anyone and it was such an original idea. And now, you know, taking a moment to really examine this, I'm like, oh, they did kind of take a lot from that. But not necessarily in a bad way because we do love that movie. But anyway, uh, yeah, truly a groundbreaking film. Um, and even though they could have done a little bit more with story, a little bit more with characters... Uh, I still think it absolutely holds up and it is still a fun watch. It is. It's a borderline perfect film. I think it's borderline. Um, And I'm not going to take points away for some of the effects being janky because it was 40 years ago. Excuse me. There's never been a movie made like that before. And in, in certain ways, they haven't made a movie like that since. Yeah. So um, my critiques with it are that, um, the Solar Sailor ride just drags on forever and ever, and Cindy Morgan's character just doesn't do enough, whether she's in the real world or on the game grid. But yeah, it's ahead of its time. I think it's a movie that's actually aged better than most movies do, because um, I think for say, a kid who's 10 years old that saw this in the movie theaters in 1982 that couldn't follow it, if you showed it to a 10-year-old kid now, they would they would get it without any sort of context because it's just so familiar to them. For sure. But we want to know what you have to say about Tron. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of taking a Disney trip this year, whether it's Walt Disney World in Florida, Disneyland in California, a Disney cruise, or Olani in Hawaii, get in touch with me for a free quote. I would love to help you plan a trip for you and your family. 
or even if you've already booked, reach out. I want to help get you the best deal possible. You can contact me on any of the Monoreal Radio social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official Monorail news sponsor, and I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget that listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that Kelly has to offer, all of her products and all of her services at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. Emmy nominations came out this week. Yes. As per the usual, Disney got a lot of nominations. Like a lot of nominations. They did. There were a couple of surprises. My my biggest surprise is not Disney related. Mandy Moore got snubbed for This Is Us, and I'm still trying to heal from it. That's why I bring it up now. Okay. Sorry. Back to Disney. All right. So Moon Knight got eight Emmy nominations. Loki got six. Uh, based on our latest conversation about Loki, it'll be interesting to see what those six nominations are. We are clearly missing something. Clearly. Get Back, the Beatles documentary, got five nominations, including Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Series. The Book of Boba Fett got four nominations. I'm sure most of that is technical. The Book of Boba Fett was good, but it was hardly great. Yeah, I don't know that any of the cast is going to be winning any awards for that as as great as it was yeah um what if got three emmy nominations including outstanding animated program we really have to catch up on that yeah we really do uh it looks like two emmy nominations for hawkeye that i think is kind of a letdown i would have liked to see more chip and definitely chip and dale rescue rangers yes i'm glad this is getting its due got a nominee for outstanding television movie No, I know we were kind of back and forth on Chippendale and we did have certain issues with the direction that they took. But overall, we liked that movie. It certainly didn't deserve to be trashed the way that some people trashed it. So I'm glad it's getting a little love. When Billy Met Lisa, which is Billie Eilish and Lisa Simpson, was nominated for Outstanding short form animated program uh the world according to jeff goldblum has been nominated of course um as the hosted nominated or sorry hosted non-fiction series um star wars visions was also nominated for outstanding short form animated program and uh, that's it as crazy as is that's it right um i i gotta be honest with you of all of those nominations, of which there were, I mean, what, almost 30? Maybe a little bit more, give Th- or take? There's a lot. I think they maybe take home five. I think that some of these uh, some of these nominations and some of these series that they got um, nominations for, like I said before, good, not great. Um, and I think in some aspects, they're going up against each other. Like, I'm sure that... It's somewhere, some way, like Hawkeye, Loki, and the Book of Boba Fett are probably all nominated for for the same award. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking they maybe take home five. Yeah, that kind of it is the way it always happens, right? I mean, I think as far as the technical awards for you know the cinematography, for the editing, for the sound design, for the visual effects, um. Unless Disney goes up against anything from Industrial Light and Magic, that if if they were, even though as closely as Disney works with Lucasfilm, Industrial Light and Magic can still do graphics and, and sound for anything. Right. So unless they're going up against them, I don't see a world where they're losing those technical awards. Um, but as far as everything else, especially because it's the Marvel catalog that we're pulling from, I don't think the industry takes it seriously enough, unfortunately, which is why my biggest surprise was Moon Knight with eight nominations. I'm really glad to see that that got some love because that was definitely a surprise because it was so different from anything else that they've done. But, um, you know, looking at the track record, look at how many things that WandaVision got nominated for. And they got, I think, what did they get? Two? 
out of how yeah. many. And Paul Bettany and Elizabeth Olsen were nominated and they totally got snubbed. Right. So it's, you know, we, we've talked about it before is it, it's unfortunate that these blockbuster films still have that stigma attached to them where they're not necessarily taken seriously all of the time. Yeah. We want to know what you guys think. How many awards do you think Disney will win? You can let us know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. And speaking of one of those programs that got nominated we did do a bonus episode the other day where we discussed season one of loki and we have a giveaway in partnership with that review where it was two loki funkos and a loki pin and a straw charm from the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. So in order to win, all you have to do is be following us on that Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. Uh, like the post. We did it. We did put a post up with a photograph of the prizes. Like the post. Follow us on the social and tag a friend. You have until Monday, July 18th at 11.59 p.m. to get your entry in, and we will announce the winner of that contest on that week's episode, which will be a review of, you guessed it, Tron Legacy. Thank you all uh, so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. I just gave you that social media. We are also on TikTok at Monorail Radio. Don't forget to follow us on there as well. Um, like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links uh, for everything related to the show, it is going to be online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monorail Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.